With the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming. Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. set you free how you doing i'm leslie marshall happy friday tgif thank god it's friday a lot of great stuff coming on the show thank you for joining us if you're listening throughout all the various ways the podcast the streams the radio broadcast and for watching me on periscope via twitter thank you for that great show coming up uh right now uh before we bring our guest on later in our hour we're going to do a little thing on this friday that we like to do every time that i host the show a little thing called ripped from the headline. President Donald Trump has suggested not once but multiple times that a coronavirus vaccine could come within months, an accelerated timeline that prominent health experts and veteran vaccine developers say is unlikely, absent a miracle. Now, I think you know my husband's a physician and he says most vaccines take 12 to 18 months. You have to develop them. You have to try them out. Uh, and you don't try them on people at first. Uh, obviously, you normally try them on animals, rats and things like that. Then you move up uh, to uh, people. And uh, before you can actually see that it is safe, it does take some time to develop and to try uh, a vaccine. Uh, and this is um, what he said, quote, we're looking to get it by the end of the year if we can, maybe before. That was today in the Rose Garden, an event centered on his administration's effort to fast track a vaccine. He said, quote, vaccine work is looking very promising before end of year. Now, the vaccine work is looking very promising, but not before the end of the year. There are different countries and different labs and different universities uh, that are really working hard to try and get this so uh, that we can stop having the loss of life. Uh, and of course, the economy, which I say takes a back seat and should to human lives. He said, quote, I think we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year. That's what he told reporters later in the day. But what do the experts say? They say that the development, testing and production of a vaccine from the public is still, what my husband said, at least a year to a year and a half, 12 to 18 months off, and that anything less would be a miracle. By the way, that's the timeline for standard uh, vaccines. Even with the rush, you're looking at a year as opposed to a year and a half. Uh, Dr. Paul Offit, who is a professor at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, he also is director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. He said, quote, I think it's possible you could see a vaccine in people's arms next year by the middle or end of next year, but this is unprecedented, so it's hard to predict. Now, this gentleman who was saying that spent 26 years developing a vaccine for, do you remember, rotavirus? I do. My daughter got it right before we went on a plane. 
and puked and had diarrhea all over me. And the lovely flight attendant, who I won't say what I really wanted to call her, wouldn't let me get up to wash myself off and go to the restroom because the seatbelt sign was on. Even though there was no turbulence, we weren't taking off or landing. Hope that made a lovely visual for you. But anyway, uh, rotavirus is a common and dangerous childhood gastrointestinal illness. And uh, before the vaccine was approved by the FDA back in 20, uh, 2006, that, that took 26 years, folks, 26 years. So when you say 12 to 18 months, that's beyond fast tracking, okay? He said vaccine development typically takes decades that efforts to counter COVID-19 are being fast tracked by scientists, drug companies, and nations rallied by the World Health Organization to meet the threat posed by the coronavirus that now we know has killed hundreds of thousands and decimated economies, not just here in the United States, but throughout the world. The coronavirus first reported in China late 2019 spread rapidly. Scientists began working on vaccines in early 2020, and the first U.S. clinical trial just began last month, excuse me, in March, the month before last. Dr. Walter Orenstein, who is a professor at Emory University, he's also associate director of the Emory Vaccine Center, said a vaccine in less than a year would really be a miracle. He said, while technically possible, it's very unlikely. He said there's so much, a lot of things that can go wrong. Dr. Stanley Plotkin, who is, by the way, somebody's name you might have heard of, he's credited with inventing the rubella vaccine back in the 1960s, 1964 to be exact. Um, developing a vaccine in a year to a year and a half, he said, was feasible, but it's dependent on the efficacy of the vaccines currently in development. And then, folks, remember, we also have to mass produce them, and you need to have the ability to do that. And we're not there yet. He said, in the best of circumstances, we should have a vaccine, or let's say vaccines, between 12 and 18 months. Whether those circumstances will be the best or not, we don't know. Remember, they'll have vaccines, but do they work? Right now, if you have a test for antibodies, it's only 60% accurate. Trump's own top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, he told the Today Show that 2021 is the earliest a vaccine could actually be ready. He cautioned that a timeline is aspirational and it depends on companies producing the vaccines before researchers are sure it will work. So remember, you got to make it, you got to research it, try it out, and then you got to mass produce it to get it to the public. Because you can't just have the White House or just have congressional members or just have professional athletes and rich people getting the vaccine, which is kind of how the COVID testing was at the start. Pressed on the issue at a Senate hearing uh, uh, this Tuesday, a few days ago, he said again, Fauci said again, he was cautiously optimistic, but quote, there's no guarantee that the vaccine is actually going to be effective. Rick Bright, who was ousted last month as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health for Preparedness and Response, he testified at a House hearing yesterday that an accelerated timeline might paint too rosy a picture. He said, quote, a lot of optimism is swirling around a 12 to 18 month time frame. If everything goes perfectly, we've never seen everything go perfectly. He said, I think 12 to 18 months is an aggressive schedule and I think it's going to take longer than that to do so. By the way, most people out there, my husband and others in the medical field say, COVID's gonna be a part of our life for two years. And that doesn't mean we're going to be, I'm gonna be working like this from home for two years. It doesn't mean we're gonna be wearing masks for two years, sheltering in place for two years. But we're not going to get back to life as we know it very quickly, as many people are hoping, especially those who are carrying guns and threatening to kill governors and hanging dolls from nooses and thinking it's a lichen to taking a train to Auschwitz and the Holocaust. Let's rip another. 
The House is expected to vote today on a $3 trillion coronavirus relief package. This was crafted by Democrats. It would include another round of stimulus payments of up to $1,200 per person. Now, the timing of the vote on the 1,815-page HEROES Act, which Democratic leaders unveiled the day before yesterday, hasn't been announced, but it's likely to take place late in the day. President Donald Trump this week declared the Democrats' proposal, DOA, down on arrival when it reaches his desk. Now, this piece of legislation, similar to the first major coronavirus aid package signed into law in late March, this bill would provide up to 1,200 in payments or 2,400 for married couples with an extra 1,200 per dependent up to a maximum of three. The income thresholds are the same as in the earlier CARES Act with money for people making up to 99,000 a year, couples up to 198,000 a year. The amount would start to reduce from 1,200 above thresholds of 75,000 and 150,000 respectively. Now to allow access to the payments for immigrants, the measure removes the requirement of a social security number from CARES Act and allows people to file tax returns with a taxpayer identification number, TIN. Uh, the HEROES legislation also, because remember, people who are not documented pay taxes. Uh, the HEROES legislation also includes nearly a trillion in aid to state and local governments, extending 600 per week addition for unemployment benefits through 2021. Expanded coronavirus testing, contact tracing and treatment, and a requirement for the Trump administration to develop a national testing strategy. Enhancing tax credits for employers to keep workers on the payroll. Support to help renters and homeowners make monthly rent, mortgage, and utility payments. $10 billion for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program to support anticipated increases in participation for food stamps. $3.6 billion for grants to states for contingency planning and preparation for elections for federal office in the fall. In a letter to House Democrats today, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat from my state of California, urged her colleagues to vote in favor of the legislation, asking them to consider young people who are missing the thrill of their in-person graduation. She said, quote, we must give them hope by alleviating the challenge that our country faces to making the future better for them. I urge our colleagues to consider all of them, our own states and their own constituents, as they make a decision today that is so important to our country. She also put pressure on her members yesterday. Last night, after some progressives and moderates expressed concern, telling lawmakers, quote, if you vote against this and all this funding for your state, then you have to go home and defend it. And if you can defend that no vote, then you're a better politician than me. Representative Kendra Horn, a Democrat from Oklahoma, tweeted that Congress should find common ground and not engage in a partisan exercise. Representative Abigail Spanberger, a Democrat in Virginia, announced that she's going to vote against it. She urged bipartisan negotiations between the House and the Senate. And despite the opposition, the bill is still expected to pass with the support of most Democrats. And by the way, even some Republicans, which makes it bipartisan. Meanwhile, Trump and his top officials have recently made clear that they're not interested in negotiating another aid package yet and that they should hit the pause button on approving more funding. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, echoed that argument. Though we did suggest in an interview on Fox News last night that he's open to another round of negotiations. He has slammed the House Democrats' proposal as just a measure containing a wish list of Democratic priorities that he has said are unrelated to the current crisis. I don't get how food for people or access to food through food stamps, for example. I don't understand how giving people money who aren't getting – there are people out there who are still not getting unemployment or they're just getting forms that make no sense at all. Uh, he said, quote, I think we all believe that another bill probably is going to be necessary, but I'm not prepared today to put a precise date on when that will be. In other words, if it's a Republican-led bill, it's okay. But a Democratic-led bill? Mm-mm. No, not really. We're going to take a break. Uh, that's what's ripped from the headlines right now. Coming back, we'll have an extended version of Ripped and more with me, Leslie Marshall, right after this. Don't go away. 
Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. TGI Friday, welcome back. Segment two of four segments in this talk show. Glad for you to be joining us today. We're going to continue with more ripped uh, from the headline. Uh, up next are headlines. Hello. Uh, Rick Bright, who was removed from his position as head of a top vaccine agency last month, testified yesterday to the House Energy and Commerce Committee that he was cut out of meetings and was told his repeated warnings about the Trump administration's lack of preparedness for the coronavirus were, quote, causing a commotion. And he was told that in January and again in February. What's the big picture on this? Well, the former director of the U.S. Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority said there were critical steps that the Trump administration failed to take early on. Those include securing uh, viral samples from China and ramping up production of the country's stockpile of medical supplies. In his opening statement, Bright testified that the window of opportunity is closing and that the U.S. could face the darkest winter in modern history if it doesn't develop a national coordinated response. He was ousted from his position last month in April, and he claimed it was a result of a leadership clash within the Department of Health and Human Services over his attempts to limit the use of hydroxychloroquine, an unproven drug heavily touted by President Trump, to, to treat coronavirus. Um, what he is saying is that in late January and February, he pointed to several opportunities within the administration to respond to the looming pandemic, like coming up with a plan to acquire doses of the drug remdesivir, and I'm sorry for saying that wrong, remdesivir, and increased production of personal protective equipment, PPE. His warnings, he said, quote, were not responded to with action. There was no action taken on the urgency to come up with a plan for acquisition of limited doses of remdesivir, or, nor to distribute those limited doses of that drug once we had the scientific data to support their use for people infected with this virus. He also said, quote, I was told that my urgings were causing a commotion and I was removed from those meetings. Later in his testimony, he was asked to recount a moment in January in which he realized that we as a nation were in fact unprepared for this pandemic. He said, quote, I'll never forget the emails I received from mask manufacturer Mike Bowen indicating that our mask supply, our N95 respirator supply was completely decimated. And he said, quote, we're in deep SH blank T. The world is, and we need to act. And I pushed that forward to the highest levels I could in HHS and got no response. And from that moment on, I knew that we were going to have a crisis for our healthcare workers because we were not taking action. We were already behind the ball. Let's rip another. The novel coronavirus will cause the sharpest economic downturn since the Great Depression. That's according to a U.N. report projected two days ago. Now, why does this matter? Governments around the world are pushing to reopen economies devastated by COVID-19 lockdown measures as cases continue to rise along with the death toll. And the World Health Organization warns the virus may never go away. My husband said it will never go away. The flu doesn't go away, but we can test for it and we have vaccines for it. For people that say, well, people die from the flu. Yes, and people will die from COVID. But we will be able to we will be able to go out in public because we won't die necessarily if we get it because we'll have a vaccine 
building our immune system to fight off this new virus, which our immune system is not recognizing and able to fight off. Uh, of course, yes, the majority of people are able to fight it off, but uh, so many aren't. And now we have this other illness that is coming, some kind of a, <clears throat> excuse me, respiratory inflammatory illness uh, with children. And I think anybody, you know, out there with a the heart cares about children. We're seeing what's happening in New York, over 100 cases now. And as a mother, uh, just more distressing. Um, anyway, uh, WHO emergencies expert Mike Ryan stressed during a briefing two days ago that it would take a massive effort to get COVID-19 under control, even if there were a vaccine. <clears throat> what we're saying um, on this, um, sorry, I don't, I'm not sick. I have something caught my throat. <clears throat> what we're saying is, quote, it is important to put this on the table. This virus may become just another endemic virus in our community, and this virus may never go away. He noted HIV hadn't gone away, but we found the therapies and we found the prevention methods. Remember, a, you know, before, if you were HIV positive, that was a, a death sentence, as COVID-19 is for many. The big picture is that the World UN Economic Situation and Prospects report stated the pandemic would cause the global economy to shrink 3.2%, racking up about $8.5 trillion in overall losses and wiping out nearly four years of output gains. A top official at WHO's mental health department to the UN warned of an emerging mental health crisis. My husband's concerned about that too. Lack of socialization with children and with people, people staying home, people staying alone, and people getting used to being home and being alone. Quote, the isolation, the fear, the uncertainty, the economic turmoil, they all cause or could cause psychological distress. That's what Devorah Kestel said, the director of that department. And by the numbers, COVID-19 has infected more than 4.3 million people, killed over 297,000. Of note, scientists are working on more than 100 potential COVID-19 vaccines. Several in clinical trials are underway. And at the end of the day, we'll probably only be able to use one or two of those. Let's rip another. And another 2.98, almost 3 million Americans filed for unemployment last week, according to the Labor Department. Why does this matter? Well, the coronavirus is still forcing a historically high number of Americans out of work. In two months alone, more than 36 million people have filed jobless claims. And if you look between the lines, the pace of new applications has slowed from its peak in March. But the weekly numbers still way higher than before businesses shuttered to contain the outbreak. By the numbers, the total number of people continuing to receive unemployment benefits after initially applying rose bringing that total to a record 22.8 million a decrease in this figure would be an indication that americans are returning back to work the bottom line here goldman sachs estimates the unemployment rate will hit 25 percent and that would match the peak level of joblessness of those unemployed during which we know historically as the great depression that's what's ripped from the headlines I'm Leslie Marshall. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by our guest. And I certainly hope that you will join us as well here on the only true democracy and talk. Kristen Clark, president and executive director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, joining us right after this. Hope you'll stick around.
We are back, and I'm happy to have with us Ms. Kristen Clark. Ms. Clark is president and executive director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, and they lead one of the country's most important and long-tenured national civil rights organizations in the pursuit of equal justice for all. The Lawyers Committee seeks to promote fair housing and community development, economic justice, voting rights, equal education opportunity, criminal justice, judicial diversity, and all the things that I like and that you listening like and more. The website for the Lawyers Committee is lawyerscommittee.org. On Twitter, the handle is at lawyerscom, C-O-M-M. Kristen's handle is at Kristen Clark, J-D, K-R-I-S-T-E-N-C-L-A-R-K-E-J-D. And additionally, the Lawyers Committee powers 866-OUR-VOTE, O-U-R-V-O-T-E. It's working 365 days a year to advance and defend your right to vote. So you can call 866-OUR-VOTE with your voting questions and issues. And remember this number between now and Election Day. The website for that is 866-OURVOTE.org. More than a pleasure to have Ms. Clark with us. Uh, thank you for joining us, Kristen, and for taking the time out of your busy schedule today. It's good to have you with us on the program. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. You know, there's a lot of stuff going around with the post office. You know, you have the president slamming up the postal system and postal workers in one breath and not in another. But then we have a a, a very murky uh, departure. Uh, and I, I think there are many people like me who are voters and who are a part of the public that want to know what's going on because they're, they're definitely, you know, if it smells like a rat, Maybe there's a rat there. The public deserves clarity around the status of Deputy Postmaster General Ronald Stroman. Uh, reports indicate that he's gone. He was uh, he maybe he resigned. Maybe he was forced out of his position. Maybe it was both. Uh, but no one really knows. Now I know that you yourself, Kristen, had uh, released a statement, and um, I I want to talk. I want to share that with our listeners. Quote: We are sounding an alarm regarding the departure of Ronald Stroman from the Postal Service. The Postal Service lies at the heart of our democracy and is critical to the success of an unprecedented vote-by-mail system that is needed for a fair and effective 2020 election season. The Postal Service is also a lifeline for vulnerable people who are counting on mail delivery for medication, stimulus payments, and more. Uh, Stroman's untimely departure signals deepening chaos and disruption inside the Postal Service at a critical moment during the 2020 election season. Quote, we call on Congress to convene oversight hearings to determine whether the recent wave of leadership shifts at the Postal Service stands to harm the public by jeopardizing implementation of the census and vote by mail amid the pandemic, end quote. So well said, so many great points. Kristen, do people not recognize that this is a very odd and suspicious timing with an election coming up in November and with many, not just people on the left, not just Democrats, crying for a vote by mail, a ballot by mail process because of COVID-19 and the fear of a second, perhaps larger resurgence uh, of this virus. Um, I, I think it's very suspicious, especially because we don't know, did he resign? Did he was forced out? Why are they being so quiet? Please respond. Yeah, something's not right here. Ronald Stroman has been uh, the number two in command at the uh, USPS for nine years. He's a veteran. He's a uh, steady hand and steady leadership at a time when the U.S. Postal Service is facing tremendous challenges in the wake of the pandemic. Um, I've got my postmaster coming to my door several times a day, it feels like, delivering mail and packages for my son. Um, 
and they're delivering medication and critical information that people need in the midst of the pandemic, including stimulus checks. They are dropping off census forms to make sure that we get a full count of the population. They're dropping off ballots. I mean, this is an unprecedented moment for the U.S. Postal Service and for this agency, which has long been out of the limelight. You don't hear about the U.S. Postal Service much when it comes to a lot of the political wrangling that happens inside the Beltway, inside D.C. And for some odd reason, uh, the, the Postal Service has just become intensely politicized. We've got a new person who's been pointed to at the helm um, of the Postal Service, um, Louis DeJoy, who uh, was a fundraiser for the RNC. It's not clear that he brings a lot of deep experience to the job. So to lose the number two at this critical moment um, is really troubling. And I think it does require that we ask questions to understand what is going on inside this agency. Absolutely. And I don't, I think some people just think of the post office as a place you drop off mail and, you know, or a place you buy stamps. And I'm so glad that, you know, you touched upon some points. My mother's 80 and she's alone. And even though we taught her to Zoom and, uh, you know, we can Skype and things like that, uh, there are people who get their checks through the mail and they need those checks. There are also people who pay bills through the post office and don't do it online. People like me who are technologically phobic and, and, and some older people that aren't comfortable with that. And they want to make sure their mortgage is paid on time. They want to make sure their electric bill is paid on time. Their health insurance is paid on time. Uh, and, and the fact that these people are part of an essential worker in this country and put their lives in a sense on the line because they're developed, they're coming in very close with a lot of the public at the post office and delivering. It, it is beyond mind blowing to me that you don't have the president, his entire administration. This, the post office isn't a liberal or conservative entity. It's an American entity that That's serves right. the people. And at this time, their service is desperately needed. Yeah. And you bring up an important point. These are essential workers. They are on the very front lines of this crisis. And about 2,000 postal workers have tested positive for a coronavirus. About 1,000 were quarantined. And 40, 40, at least 40 postal workers um, have passed away. And that number may have gone up. Um, these are, you know, critical blue collar jobs for so many people across the country. But most importantly, it is it is a lifeline. And you talk about how, uh, you know, you pay your bills online, even for the people who have gone online. That's not an option. Uh, right. I mean, there are a lot of people who are just are, are doing things the old fashioned way right now. They're waiting for that paycheck to get to them. They're not going out um, inside their homes. And um, I'm just very, very concerned about what's happening. And when you think about the 2020 census, right, that is underway right now, every decade our country under the Constitution has this deep obligation to carry out a count, a full count of the population. And normally you'd have census workers who'd be knocking on doors right now in hard to count communities, and that's not happening. The, the mail system is what's helping to fill in those gaps. Without a full and functioning mail system, we're not gonna get an accurate uh, uh, census count in 2020. And then the election adds a whole new layer of urgency to this conversation 
there is a pandemic. People are dying, people are being infected, people are afraid to leave their homes. And the mail system is central to ensuring that the election system that we have in 2020 works. We've been through primaries and we've seen spikes in the number of people who are exercising their right to cast an absentee ballot. And we should expect that that will continue in June for those states that are having elections and will it, it, you know, will continue throughout this season. So we need postal workers out there to keep these critical um, uh, systems going. Absolutely. Very well said. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have more with this uh, surrounding the post office and some other issues within this issue to discuss. And people forget, look, I bought paper towels the other day. They came in via the postal service, not UPS, uh, not an Amazon truck. There's a lot of different delivery services, and the USPS is one vital uh, lifeline for so many Americans. We'll be back with our guests. We'll be back with you right after this. A quick break. Once again, our guest, Kristen Clark, President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee. Please check out the website during this break, lawyerscommittee.org. Follow them on Twitter, at lawyerscom, C-O-M-M. And follow Kristen as well, at Kristen Clark, J-D, that's Clark with an E. And check out that 866ourvote.org, and you can call 365 days a year. You have questions about voting? Call now, 866-OUR-VOTE. We'll be back right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall Dunkley. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. guest president and executive director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, Kristen Clark, the website for the Lawyers Committee, lawyerscommittee.org on Twitter, follow them at lawyerscom, C-O-M-M, and Kristen can be found at Kristen Clark, J-D. Don't forget that 866rvote.org website and also check out that phone number. Questions about voting? Call them now. They're open 365 days a year, 866-OUR- Vote, O-U-R-V-O-T-E. Uh, Kristen, thank you for holding and welcome back. Um, we were talking about the United States Postal Service. Uh, they're the latest victim of the attack on, on voting rights, it would seem. Um, there are more states out there that are making changes to their election laws um, due to fears uh, from not just officials and government officials and people in the whole voting process, but voters themselves uh, about coronavirus. But it does remain uncertain how prepared local officials are to offer alternative methods of voting. I'm in California, and my governor, Gavin Newsom, he announced uh, last week that the state would move toward an all-mail uh, election, and that would mean tens of millions of ballots will go through the postal system. A couple of things here. One, what are people so afraid of? The U.S. military has been voting by mail since the Civil War, and there hasn't been an issue with that or people living overseas uh, why is this so much fear? Because, look, I'm a liberal, I'm a Democrat, I'm a progressive. But when I just look at the facts and I look at the numbers, voting by mail doesn't really benefit either Democrat or Republican necessarily. It just ends up who, who votes you yeah. know? and if they yeah. take the time to fill out the, uh, the, the ballot. So what, what, is the, what is the fear? Because I know they talk about fraud. 
but but you know there hasn't there have not been problems since the civil war with the military voting by mail yeah i'm so glad you brought that up because this actually gets left out of the conversation a lot you've got this federal law uocaba the united overseas absentee citizens um and military voters act that basically allows election officials to transmit registration forms absentee ballots um, applications to americans living abroad and to our uniform personnel uh, serving abroad and, and some of these transactions can even happen by way of facts so i absolutely hate that we're forgetting um, that part of how our election system operates for those people who want to falsely claim that vote fraud is a reason why we shouldn't be having absentee balloting in place it makes no sense because right now we are sending election-related material to Americans and military members abroad in other countries, sometimes by facts, by way of facts. Um, fraud has nothing to do with the hostility and opposition that we're seeing right now to absentee voting. And it is illogical and indefensible and un-American that there would be officials who say, I'm not giving you that absent, that option of requesting a ballot and putting it in the mail. I'm going to force you to go out um, to interact, you know, uh, publicly with uh, officials at a, at a at a polling site during a pandemic. It is cruel. Um, we are fighting at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law to make sure that voters have as many options as possible. If you want to cast an absentee ballot you should be able to do so. Um, if you wanna go out and vote in person during early voting, well, let's have expanded early voting opportunities so that we can really ease the burdens that officials have to contend with during early voting. And we need in-person. We need in-person voting opportunities on election day. But if you do it right, if you do it right, there will be plenty of people who would have cast their ballot before election day so that we won't have the same kind of burden and crowds uh, on election day. But we can't remember, forget that, you know, we have homeless people, people experiencing mm. homelessness, um, people who have language needs, people with disabilities. And for some of them, there is no other option but to vote in person on election day. This election season is like none other, and it really requires that uh, states follow the lead of California in really making it easy for people to vote absentee if that's what they choose. But we gotta make sure that we fight to have all of these avenues open for participation, expansive early voting and in-person voting options on election day. That's what it's gonna take to make sure that everyone's voice is heard during an election season where we know turnout and participation rates are always at their highest levels. You know, when you, when you think about it, there are so many reasons somebody would choose, especially now, uh, not to go out. There are people that have childcare issues and don't want to bring their child uh, children out in public. Um, I know I'll make a supermarket run when my neighbor outside can watch my kids in the front yard while I run or my husband is home, you know, from work um, because I'm not going to bring them to the store. I don't want to expose them to that. You know, I, I wear a mask, I have my gloves, but, you know, I'm staying at home most of the time and, you know, following, you know, the, the recommendations and the shelter in place orders. Um, it, it, but when you look at voting, 
What I don't understand is that the White House turned funding the Postal Service into a partisan debate. And when you do look at the numbers, if anything, Republicans kind of benefit from mail-in voting more because of two things, the military and the elderly. And, you know, more senior citizens vote Republican than they do Democrat, more military vote Republican. So why has the White House turned this into a, a partisan debate? This this is that there are some states that already have concerns about the surge in not just uh, absentee uh, ballots and whether they're going to have the funding or the people to be able to process every returned ballot. Like you said, this is about having choices. If somebody is high risk, they should not be going out even six feet apart, especially if that frightens them. So yeah. why is the White House making this a partisan issue? Opposition to absentee voting is illogical and indefensible, period. You know, it, this is, as you know, this has never really been a traditional civil rights issue. You've not really seen civil rights organizations historically pushing uh, for absentee sure. voting. The experience of voting in person really matters to a lot of communities, particularly those who have fought long, hard battles to get access to the ballot box. That opportunity to go in and cast your vote on that machine and know, knowing that it will count is an experience that really matters to African-Americans and people of color in particular. But we've got a pandemic that's landed at our doorstep that has turned everything upside down, that has turned this election on its head. And it is impractical. People simply are not able to vote without having that option to vote absentee. You've got people quarantined, people hospitalized, people who are high risk. Um, essential wor essential workers and healthcare workers who can't take the time off to vote. Exactly. It's an option that we need on um, the table. So the opposition, I think, is just, um, it's crazy to me. It, it almost feels that, as if, sadly, we have a president who would be happy to have as few people participating as possible. As somebody who has been fighting for ballot access, fighting for voting rights every day of my career, um, I, I am committed to doing all that we can, whether that is fighting in the courts or outside the courts to make sure everyone has voice this season. I'll tell you, we just filed a suit recently in Tennessee. my mind. <laughs> yeah, just filed a suit in Tennessee, one of the worst states when it comes to absentee balloting. You have to fall into one of 12 categories. State officials this week said that fear of COVID is not a legitimate basis to vote absentee. And wait, this this is crazy. If you are a person who chooses to go out and distribute absentee ballot applications, you can that that's actually criminal in Tennessee. What? You can yes, you can be wow. subject to criminal penalties and fines. So we're in court right now, battling Tennessee. I don't care if you're black, white, poor, rich, rural, urban. There is a pandemic and every American deserves access Absolutely. to absentee ballot. You, you, you had mentioned uh, that people of color, um, really, especially African-Americans, want to go to the ballot box. But we also have to look at communities of color have been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus. Uh, you know, that's that's not a tagline. That is a fact. So yeah. many of these people, one, 
And also, too, if states have less money, they may close down some of the voting areas. And they always seem to do it where people have lower income. Right. Um, you yeah. know, or some of these mi- minority neighborhoods. So uh, the, the, the ballot to be able to mail that in is essential, especially in communities of color during this pandemic. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, um, yeah. Elderly communities are suffering, but African-Americans have disproportionately felt the brunt of the pandemic. And so it does add yet another layer of complexity right. to this election season, one where we're contending with right. voter suppression and, and now COVID-related challenges. Absolutely crazy. Uh, Kristen, you're awesome. We'll have you back. Thank you for taking the time. And you look lovely, lovely for a radio show. Kristen Clark, (laughs) President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Their website is lawyerscommittee.org. On Twitter, follow them there, at lawyerscom, C-O-M-M. And Kristen's handle is at Kristen Clark, J-D. That's Clark with an E. Go to to 866ourvote.org to find out information about your voting questions and, and issues, but call them. They're open every day, 866-OUR-VOTE, 866-O-U-R-V-O-T-E. I'm Leslie Marshall. Have a wonderful weekend, a safe weekend, and a shout out to Marky Mark Grimaldi. With the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming, Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details. You've had jobs. Now it's time to launch your career with CareerQuest. Our promise is to deliver you essential career training and the best educational experience for high-demand fields like healthcare, business, information technology, and more. And with online learning, we accommodate your schedule according to your needs. Plus, most programs can be completed in just eight months. Your journey towards success starts here at CareerQuest. Start living your quest life today. Simply enroll today for online learning options at careerquest.edu.